Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. At a time of particular political turmoil in the UK, with Prime Ministers changing every other month and Cabinet Ministers barely having a chance to be sworn in before they're replaced by somebody else, uh, it's rather a challenge if we're going to be looking at UK domestic politics as we're trying to, uh, to keep ourselves topical and to respond to um, how things are developing. And if that's a problem for us, then of course it's even more of a problem for the opposition and for the Labour Party at the moment. Uh, I think a moving target is probably a fair way of describing uh, the government at the moment. Um, No sooner have they been able to settle on a particular line of attack than the target uh, seems to be regenerating in front of their eyes. So um, we will return to that issue uh, and to looking at how parties in opposition in the UK uh, are able to confront a government that at times seems to be falling apart in front of their very eyes. Um, but whilst we take stock, and hopefully things settle down a little bit for the moment under the new Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak, um, we're going to take a, a bit of a step back and uh, turn our attention to world affairs. Uh, we haven't done this for a while, but I thought it was worthwhile to uh, have an episode just uh, looking at some issues around the world. And uh, there is a lot uh, to consider in terms of uh, opposition around the world. There have been large numbers of protests on the street in Iran, for example, and uh, that's something which uh, certainly I was very interested in in looking at, not being a foreign policy expert myself. um, But we have, uh, in the past, at the Centre for Opposition Studies, hosted a number of seminars and uh, speeches from uh, people who are either Iranian exiles uh, or people with an expert in uh, expertise in Iranian politics talking about opposition in Iran. And we've been doing that um, over the last decade or so. We've had various meetings uh, and uh, events on, on that subject. Um, and elsewhere, there's also uh, opposition in Russia that we've looked at before on this podcast. And uh, with the uh, continuing aggression against uh, Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's war there. Um, we've seen increasing amounts of disquiet and protests against the war within Russia and uh, a predictable and um, rather forthright response to that by the Russian state uh, as well, uh, particularly since they have begun conscripting uh, forces to go to the front. We've seen um, examples of um, protests taking place Um, on the streets in in Russia as well, something we've talked about uh, before, which continues to be um, uh, an issue of uh, current interest. And of course, within Ukraine itself, there is, if you like, the the most direct form of uh, opposition, the resistance by uh, the Ukrainian people and their army to the invasion by Russia. So a lot of opposition flying around, if we define it more broadly than we um, usually do on this podcast in terms of Um, opposition within um, the UK and political parties. A lot of opposition going on uh, there around the world, which I thought it'd be worthwhile taking a step back to um, discuss some of those issues. And my guest this week as we uh, examine those is um, somebody I've known for uh, many years. It's uh, Dr. Garvin Walsh, who is the former foreign and defence policy advisor to the Conservative Party. He's now a research associate at the Wilfrid Martin Centre for European Studies in Brussels. Uh, He writes uh, widely on foreign policy and defence, including for uh, the journal Foreign Policy, um, and has also written for uh, a variety of outlets, including uh, The Economist, uh, New Statesman, and uh, other publications. So somebody who um, knows a lot about uh, foreign policy and defence. And so I thought for this rather Uh, wide-ranging discussion about uh, opposition around the world um, in uh, all of those countries, it'll be useful to have uh, a chat with him. So I began by asking Garvin about the recent protests that we've been seeing in Iran. They're not entirely unprecedented. We have seen protests there before. But I asked him what was particularly significant about those that we've seen in recent weeks. These are simply the biggest protests that Iran has seen since certainly since 2009 over the disputed election, um, uh, possibly in, in the um, history of the Islamic Republic. They are have lasted now 45 days. They incorporate um, all sectors of society from university students to striking workers, to the middle classes, to people in 
um, the countryside to members of Iran's ethnic minorities. They're extremely widespread. They're overstretching the security forces. And um, there are even places where they're finding it hard to enforce um, the Islamic dress codes, gender segregation at universities, uh, and so forth. The, the, um, this, is, this is despite significant brutality by the regime. You know, they're shooting young boys and girls, essentially in cold blood, and they're shooting unarmed people. Um, they are really losing authority as well. Mm. And uh, remind us what what kicked it off. I mean, you say it's been <clears throat> been going now for sort of forty five days, um, sort of uh, almost exceeding the uh, premiership of Liz Truss, actually, in terms of the its longevity. But what 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 was it that acts as the catalyst to start this? The catalyst was um, the death in custody of a young woman called Ma Masa Amini, uh, who was arrested for wearing her hijab improperly, and then. Um, uh, by all accounts, beaten to death by the so-called morality police. They tried to cover it up and said she accidentally suffered a heart attack, but no one believes that. And it's it like often happens, you know, uh, deaths of individuals can spark um, significant uprisings when there's pent-up frustration, no other way to for people to express their anger. And this has really caught fire. And I noticed that you you wrote um, a piece I think last month for foreign policy, sort of saying this this could be the beginning of the the end of the regime. What why do you think that this this might be um, the beginning of the end this time when there've been plenty of occasions or certainly some in the past? You know um, the sort of Green Revolution was that 10, 10 years ago or, or a decade ago. So you know it, it, there ha there have been protests before which have not sort of precipitated the. The downfall of the regime. Why do you think it might be this time? I think the big reason is that the supreme leader is actually 83 and won't be around for much longer. And it's very hard for authoritarian regimes to, you know, renew themselves after the the main the main figure dies. The the whole revolutionary generation are um, getting pretty long in the tooth now and out of touch from the rest of society. Um, even the the president, who is sort of the, one of the younger members of that generation, he's 63, um, he's so hardline, he's cut off all the uh, safety valves that the Iranian system used to have. And um, so even if these protests themselves don't overwhelm the regime, it's not clear that they're, they're able to be big enough to sort of, you know, occupy huge thoroughfares and squares in Tehran and bring the economy to, to a, um, a halt, they're they're, they're certainly getting ready for, um, to contest the succession. You know, once once uh, Khamenei dies, then um, it's not clear who will replace him. It's not, and there are bodies that are set up to do that, but it, it's it's going to be much harder than to command any kind of legitimacy than it had been before. And in terms of the the, the future for um, for Iran, um, one of the issues I think with any sort of regime where you have a sort of a totalitarian dictatorship and you have no space for democratic politics is that the opposition can be quite unfocused so we're seeing protests on the streets there is no opposition in the sense that we would understand it in a in, in a western um democratic society can we discern sort of who the groupings are is there a is there any sort of basis for for seeing, um, you know, an, an alternative to, to the regime, um, or, or are we looking at a, you know, a, a really sort of disparate range of, um, of factions who are sort of coming together to, to protest? I mean, I mean, there are political parties in Iran. They're just not relevant to this um, uprising, mm. um, because the Iranian system has, you know, forms of election and people can contest them. It's just that the government got into the habit of disqualifying anyone who didn't support the regime, so the elections became rather meaningless. But the political parties exist, the organizations exist, they've just been completely outflanked by this um, uprising, which seems so far to be decentralized. It has a very minimal set of demands that are mostly about dismantling um, religious coercion. Now, what, uh, rather than socioeconomic agendas or any, anything else, now, what Iran does have because of its curiously hybrid constitution, which has a theocratic element and a democratic element together, and what's happened is a theocratic element's taken over, they could simply remove the theocratic elements from the constitution, and then they would have institutions that would are more or less reasonably ready to act as representative government. 
there are parliaments, there are commissions of parliamentary inquiry, there is a presidency. They need to change things like making women eligible to run for the presidency. But if they just remove the, the filters and that filter candidates that can overrule parliamentary decisions that can pick the supreme leader, if they remove the office of supreme leader, then it it can operate it could operate reasonably well as a democratic institution. They would have to deal with the judiciary, which is obviously um, very clerical. And they'd have to uh, purge that and replace it with the secular judiciary. And they'd have to deal with the revolutionary guards who are the you know, militant ideological Praetorian guard of the regime and in many ways stronger than the actual army. It's a thing that's been going on for 40 years. And they are not only militarily strong, they also have a web of business um, interests throughout, throughout the regime. They control lots of state-owned enterprises and monopolies. In that sense, they have they have a post-Soviet job to do on the um, judiciary and on the um, on the revolutionary guards, but they're they're better prepared than the so than the Soviet states were for ordinary parliamentary relations and having a cabinet and government ministries and so forth and political parties existing. Now, how the political parties try and absorb um, the new revolutionary movement or compete with them is is another matter. But there is um, some constitutional structure there that can be used to run a democratic system. In that sense, Iran is much better prepared than the rest of the Middle East as well was during the Arab Spring. Right. So that's an interesting point that, that you know, although, you know, we would look at a country like Iran as being undemocratic, and as you say, any anyone who um, opposes the regime is disqualified from election, but you're saying that the, the, the sort of institutions and structures that are there provide the basis for actually making those genuinely democratic. Yeah, and you could, you know, you could, the best comparison, I think, is because you're this kind of podcast, I'll say this, but it's, <laughs> it's a bit like the constitution of the um, Dutch Republic in the um, 17th century. The supreme leader is like the Stadthouder. He's like, he's, you know, appointed for life and then wields essentially absolute power. But in the absence of any Stadthouder, then it becomes um, a much more pluralistic system. So you just need to basically chop off the supreme leader office mm. and then, uh, and the associated things like the Assembly of Experts and the Guardian Council. And then you have a parliamentary regime. I mean, this goes back to how the Iranian revolution began, because it was a, there was a tripartite coalition between Islamists, Democrats, and communists. And the Islamists and the communists ganged up to squash the Democrats first, and then they fought, fought it out, leading mm. to the Islamic revolution, rather than a communist Iran might also have happened. Yes, that's really interesting. And what about the position of the crown prince, Rafa Pahlavi? I know that you know he's somebody who has sort of reinvented himself now as a campaigner for democracy in in Iran. I think he's based in in France. Does he have any any sway over public opinion there? Do you think? Um, no. I, I, no. Okay. <laughs> the, la the, la the last thing they want is to bring back the old monarchy. This is a really modernist revolution, mm. um, um, and the Iranian exile movement is, is you know fairly out of touch with stuff going on in there like exile movements often are mm. um you know the only time you could imagine a figure like that coming back is after there's a revolution and then there's some kind of conflict and he could step in as a mediator but even that i wouldn't mm. i wouldn't you know half of the iranian population is born, has been born in the last 30 or 30 years you know they have no idea really who this person is so, so you have exile demonstrations with the old lion and sun flag and this isn't this isn't what this is about at all. It is not represented. Well, I wonder that because I think I was um, I was walking down Whitehall last week and there was a demonstration um, there, which I was quite surprised to see pictures of. Uh, well, it, it varies as to the, the degree of their um, their monarchism as to whether they describe him as the crown prince or actually describe him as the Shah. But um, but but certainly sort of you know uh, having him as a as a figure figurehead for for the um, sort of opposition movement in in exile. Well, you know, we would like the Habsburgs coming back to Hungary or something after. <laughs> <laughs> yes it, well it's it's quite a sort of a, a neat and attractive thing is that i think that um there was discussion about it even in, in regards to iraq wasn't there about um you know people sort of saying oh, or or you know iraq and afghanistan sort of, sort of saying oh well could we reinstitute a monarchy there well I, I remember going i remember going to one event um by the um convened by the ex grand grandson of the ex-king of libya or something right <laughs> and he had a madcap scheme as Gaddafi was falling to go around distributing CD-ROMs of himself meeting with British authorities around um, villages in Libya and thinking this would somehow endear him to the local population. <laughs> well, I'm sure that the uh, 
you know there, there must be a, a sort of a, a club of um uh, of exiled um former uh, former monarchs who um yeah i mean there's a good, sort of looking for a job one of the, the ex-king of bulgaria for example came back and entered democratic politics and i think mm. he became prime minister yes i think i remember seeing that yeah but as a democratic politician yeah it's a slightly different thing isn't it coming back as a yeah, as a politician using that sort of recognition to um to enter democratic politics rather than actually seeking to restore um, a monarchy there the process and, you know, is... to go back to the shah as well the shah was there for a while but before then in, you know in the 50s it, iran had a sort of semi-democratic pre- uh, prime minister in mossadegh it was of course removed in the coup with backing from the uk and us but um so they have other non-shah related traditions mm. of representative government going back to the constitutional revolution early in the 20th century yeah and you you mentioned as well that, that you know how how young this this sort of protest is um and is that a significant thing i mean we saw this with the arab spring 10 years ago that the increased number of of young people in in um middle eastern societies is a huge um, contributor is that what we're seeing now we're seeing a sort of a uh, you know a new generation of um of iranians who you know who have different different values different values but and a lot of iranians always have different values the values of the regime they were you know they were able to impose themselves because of the conditions of the revolution but also the iran iraq war allowed them to consolidate power at a time where otherwise they'd have faced a lot of internal trouble because they they didn't um advertise the idea that they'd set up a religious dictatorship they just imposed it afterwards after seizing power hmm. they you know there were huge demonstrations um against islamic dress codes in like 1980 or 1981 they were you know ignored but and, and religious police then went around arresting people who didn't comply with them you know it's iran's a much more modernized society than many others in the region it has a more diverse economy than iraq for example it's not as oil dominated Tehran itself is a very, you know, bustling and surprisingly developed, uh, surprisingly developed and developed city, um, notwithstanding the, the regime they're in that isolates them from from the rest of the world. But they're much more, you know, urbanized and cosmopolitan than uh, many of their neighbors. Mm. And so, what does a uh, a change look like in in Iran? If you, as you said, the foundations are there, perhaps for the institutions. Um, to see a transition um, to genuine democracy. You talked about the fact that it's likely to be um, on issues such as religious freedom and um, and, and sort of a, you know. Oh, freedom, freedom not to have a religion is really. Well, I mean, yeah, so exactly. Um, so sort of, freedom, you know, Let's call it freedom from religion. Freedom from religion. Um, and sort of more sort of, you know, more sort of liberal, um, liberal society. Do you think that there are, you know, in the in you know in the parties that could exist, um, you know, were an election to to to, um, to take place in which they're allowed to compete, you know, do we know what that would look like? Do we know what a sort of a um, a less theocratic um, government in in Iran would look like? Well, there'd be a, there'd be a contest for a while between sort of you know regime moderates who would want to just liberalise the existing system, mm. and then um, radicals who'd want to replace it with with a liberal democracy. Mm. And, um, you know, in, in the same way that forms of, you know, socialism and social democracy are discredited in former Soviet states. Um, and you have, you know, you end up with, you do have left-wing parties, but it's very hard for them to get above 12 or 15% of the vote. Islamist political movements will be discredited in Iran because they're associated with coercion and dictatorship. And they won't be able to... You know, they're not. It's not like Egypt, where Islamism was the opposing force, the dictatorship, and you had a very strong Muslim Brotherhood. As a result, <clears throat> they'll they'll be sidelined, and you'll probably you'll probably see some quite aggressive liberalism that will be very new for the region. Mm. And uh, and can we see where those groups are and where they would be coming from? This is sort of you know, do do you see there being a sort of an escalation from the current protests into sort of you know an elite led kind of uh, reform or you know what are we talking about here are we talking about a sort of a generational gradual um, change or are we talking about you know something happening with elements within the regime recognizing that something needs to change I mean you're not seeing you know a Khomeini type figure from abroad who is you know famous and transcends politics who could come back um, to lead opposition you're currently not seeing 
you know what the what the Rus what the Russians call the systemic opposition coming back in um, to power. Like if 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 the regime starts making those kind of concessions and allowing, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking of people people like people associated with the Green Revolution, for example, mm. or or allowing Rafsanjani's daughter to come come back and play some role in politics. That that sort of thing would be interesting, and then you could start to see them thinking that in order to save what they can from the regime, they're going to have to make very big concessions, but we're not seeing any of that yet. We're still seeing a very narrow base within the clerical establishment running the show. And they've eased, they've eased off on some of the sort of direct enforcement of Islamic dress codes and whatever, but they're not, um, uh, they're, they're still, you know, attacking and beating people up. You're not seeing stuff like that. You're not, I don't think they're in the mood for compromise. Um, they think they can ha handle this, and they think that security forces are enough to suppress things and keep keep the economy going, and everything will run along, and then um, they'll hope it will run out of steam as people get people get arrested, or at least it won't grow. Mm. Um, and at some point, the you know the, the revolutionaries have to think about what they do next. How do they bring more pressure on the regime? Do they try and occupy bits of Tehran? Uh, do they have do they have big, million-strong demonstrations? Do they <clears throat> find ways to get defectors from the regime? Um, this is all; these are all parts of revolutionary strategy they need to think about. Mm. But as I said, I think it'll—it's more likely to be a succession crisis after Khamenei dies than something that immediately comes from this outburst. Right. And then you know the succession crisis. He'll try and point the current. They're probably trying to point the him, but the. Um, Assembly of Experts, which is the body that elects the Supreme Leader, um, will try and appoint um, Raisi, the current president, probably in that scenario. And then you have the regime doubling down on um, coercion, doubling down on repression. But that would be very, very, um, <clears throat> you'd kind of have a very, very narrow base. And the appointment of such a figure would be a trigger for another um, mm. set of um, opposition activity and uprisings. Mm. You're also, you're also seeing significant um, uprisings both in the Kurdish north and in the Arab southwest um, because these are areas where there's significant minority populations that you know aren't Persian so and they're also using this as a, a chance to chafe against central authority mm. the stuff in, in, in the Kurdish areas is pretty is, is, is pretty intense and they've had to send the regimes have to send out actual military units in to try and suppress it so it's not going to be easy, <laughs> and, no. it's, and it's not going to be quick, um, and, and it may and, and may end up being bloody if they keep. Yes, if they, if they keep, you know, trying to just crack down. Mm. Well, it's one to certainly watch, and I think that, as I say, we've uh, in the past had uh, various seminars and meetings on um, the situation in Iran, and it's perhaps one that we'll look to do um, in in the near future as well to return to that but um if we move on from uh, iran there are um i also wanted to touch on um, well both ukraine but also um russia to an extent the definition of uh, of opposition is is pretty broad i think you um you mentioned this when you tweeted about this <laughs> this interview that uh you know we i mean my my research focus is very much on sort of uk um democratic opposition and as we've seen, we're talking about Iran, you know, the opposition of people on the streets to a, a, a regime is a very different type of opposition. Um, if you then move up a gear and look at uh, Ukraine, and essentially you have the ultimate opposition, which is um, military conflict and uh, and you know fighting uh, an attempt attempted uh, invasion and occupation by a, a foreign state is a pretty it's a pretty extreme form of uh, of opposition to have to put uh, put up. Um, not uh, you know this is not um, standing up at Prime Minister's question time. So, I mean, looking at um, uh, the situation in in Ukraine as, as it stands now. You know, Russia has changed its its approach now, and that we're now seeing much more regular um, missile attacks on um, on Kiev. And the I think the reports today, as we're as we're speaking, is that most of the capital is now without water. There's been attacks on sort of utilities and that kind of thing. This is a different strategy from uh, from Russia, isn't it? Um, what, what's your what's your view of where where we are in terms of the Ukrainian conflict? I sort of thought around February this year that the Russians had had about two years of fight in them. 
that's how long I think Putin can go without a run, but without running out of out of men to send to get killed in the front, and without running out of other men to um, arrest and beat up their mothers for protesting about the fact that their sons are being sent to the slaughter. Mm. There's a, he has Russia has huge repressive resources, about four and a half million people working for the uh, Russian internal security services. So they can still do a lot more of this. At the moment, what he seems to be doing is shoving these um, guys into the front line to get killed by the Ukrainians, but at least slow the Ukrainian advance. Um, the attacks on you know, power and water facilities are to try and make things more unpleasant for the Ukrainians. Um, they're not being brilliantly successful. They, they cause temporary power outages, but um, repairs are made. The West is obviously working on how to send spare parts and other equipment back into Ukraine so that things get things don't get um, knocked out for too long. Um, the Ukrainians have shown they're really good at repairing stuff. Um, and, you know, there were 40 missiles fired fired this morning and only six got through. Like, unfortunately, some of them clearly hit some water plants, but it's... Um, this is beyond Russia's ability to maintain its missile stockpiles. Mm. You know, they have to be pretty advanced to get fast air defenses, and so they're expensive and difficult to make and need microelectronics that Russia has now cut off from. <clears throat> so it's going the main the main thing I, I would I would say about this, in, insofar as it makes any sense, which is always something we have to wonder about with some of these Russian tactics. But insofar as it makes any sense, it would be to try and make the Ukrainian economy inoperable um, so that eventually Western support for Ukra the Ukrainian economy would run out and that would stop them being able to, you know, mount a war effort. So if you, if you, because you can't, you know, invest in reconstructing facilities if the power keeps running out, you can't um, go, go back in and, um, build up new companies if, if there's no water i think or heating i think that that would be it's insofar as it's got a plan it's a, it's it's a plan to cripple it economically mm. um whether it'll work probably won't um but if you can the idea would be crippled economically and then hope that there'll be a lot of war fatigue in uh, in the west and i think this war fatigue thing is significantly overdone um, people seem, although people in Western Europe are quite distant from the war, um, people seem to be pretty happy to, you know, support it, mostly because the Russians are behaving so appallingly. Mm. Um, and the move to, as you say, to sort of looking at, at kind of essentially, you know, economic warfare, trying, you know, cripple the, um, the Ukrainian economy. Um, is that a recognition of the fact that, you know, the attempt to... Um, to defeat Ukraine militarily has has failed. I mean, we, we could see that it was failing. Um, you know, the, this idea that it would take seventy two hours to take the whole country. Um, you know, from the from the beginning, um, and and that you know that clearly has 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 failed and has failed over many months. Um, but is that a sort of is this a sort of final recognition that actually it's, that that's not going to cut it? They're not going to be able to um, to win boots on the ground and so this is you know we're moving to missile attacks and we're seeing that kind of uh, change in tactics to try and sort of defeat the um as you oh, say wow. the, the sort of economic ability to fight a war well russia always fights economic war uh, it's its tactic in syria was to bomb bakeries and hospitals and factories uh, when when it was able to fire artillery at ukrainian cities it deliberately targeted um economic and civilian targets the idea behind russian military doctrine here is to try and tie up your enemy's forces, um, helping to save their civilian population so they can't fight you. It's a very, you know, it's an evil form of warfare, but there's there's a certain logic to it. So this is just a continuation of that, that with the means that are available to them at the moment. They can't um, shell Kharkiv because the Ukrainians have pushed them out. They can't um, get anywhere near Kiev because their normal military assault failed. Had they been able to get it, get within artillery range of Kyiv, you would have they would have attacked it in the way that they attacked Mariupol, you know, deliberately destroying the civilian areas, trying to cause as much damage as possible, taking out um, the possibility of um, living uh, civilian life. It would have been absolute hell. And thankfully they were repelled, but that's what they would have done. Mm. And, and what are the, 
you know, what are the immediate sort of prospects? We look heading into winter now, and um, and there seems to be some suggestion that that is part of this this, this tactic. To um, you know, Russia has a long military history of of uh, using uh, the winter to its um, to its advantage. Um, you know, what are we likely to be to be seeing as we go into into the winter? I mean, we have to mention that if 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 because of the way the weather is weather is going, it seems a general winter also seems to have uh, been about as enthusiastic as the rest of Russian forces <laughs> this time. But, you know, Ukrainians are also used to winter. This is... <laughs> yes. it, is their, it is their country after all. So it's not like they're fighting. It's not like they're, they're fighting in Central Africa. And the Ukrainians are likely to have um, much better winter equipment for their troops because they actually think that's important. Um, so they'll probably be able to fight better. Um, the question, I suppose, is whether Ukrainians will be able to take um, Kherson and liberate liberate Kherson and um, the rest of the territory to the west of the Dnieper before before the fighting season stops. There's some suggestions that their you know advances are slower because both Russia is throwing in all these extra conscripts into the line, but also um, you know the the rain and wind which is happening down there is making things a bit tougher um so will they be able to liberate Kherson and or trap the Russians on the far side of the river that would be very helpful because it'll prevent them being able to reinforce anything during the winter lull um and it will mean they'll have to launch new attacks against fortified positions over a huge river which is obviously very difficult to do mm. and that would be the main Ukrainian objective conversely the main Russian objective tactically is to try and avoid being pushed back over that river and trying to retreat to a reasonable defensive line somewhere through the Donbass that they can fortify and um, then try and break down the coalition of support for Ukraine uh, mainly through economic measures because filling up our gas storage next year is going to be another challenge and the year after that and then if Russia can cut off more gas supplies to us and make it more difficult for us to try and find it, we can, of course, build new LNG terminals and substitute gas for other fuels. It's not a static um, conflict at all here. Um, we're, you know, pretty technologically sophisticated and ingenious civilizations. We can uh, find ways around um, these Russian um, tactics. And what about the prospects of um, sort of escalation? Um, there have been some quite alarming um, signals in in the past few days, really, actually, and and, and weeks with um, discussions between um, sort of the Russian um, chief of defence staff and and sort of British equivalent, sort of uh, you know calling meetings to sort of it looks very much like pretext being prepared in terms of um you know russia asking you know accusing the west of uh of planning to uh to use a dirty bomb or whatever or these various other things that are being um being cited you know it it does have sort of the aura of, of um russia preparing sort of to do something which it can then claim is is a retaliation for a, a western escalation you know, this is a kind of you know we're not just, we're not just talking about sort of Russia versus Ukraine here. This is a, a country that is, you know, is, is very much being backed by the West and um and Russia obviously is is um is framing it in that way as well. Um this is this is potentially quite quite worrying and alarming, isn't it, for those of us sat in London. Well, I mean the Russians always nuclear do nuclear saber rattling. It's always been part of their um official doctrine um they also always try and do deniable operations um and the important thing is we've wised up to their deniable operations we don't believe their denials and very clear signals have been sent that there anything that looks like a pretext will be treated as if it's a russian um trick and very strong conventional retaliation will meet any attempt, any thought of Russian nuclear escalation. So uh, Western powers have the means to um, destroy the Russian military through conventional weapons alone. There will be no need for a nuclear response to uh, Russia attempting to create a dirty bomb or to 
um, or launching a tactical nuclear weapon. There would probably be similarly tough responses to attempts to shut off um, oil pipelines or other critical infrastructure. Mm. But I mean, this, uh, Stoltenberg was very clear to indicate that this would either be taken as a, an attack on NATO or even an attack on coalitions of the willing within NATO. So, you know, Hungary or someone decides not to act, they, were, they wouldn't be able to block it. Mm. But I mean, taking something as an attack on NATO is obviously um, <laughs> the also escalation. Um, and, and equally, you know, from some of talking about sort of some of these pretexts that are being uh, clearly sort of. Um, prepared you know there the sort of the language we're seeing from some of these meetings is um is is russia saying you know that um nato or the west are planning to do the following or whatever um you know all it takes for a um for a sort of severe escalation is for russia to accuse the west of having done something and saying this is an attack on you know attack by nato on russia um particularly if they you know in in areas of ukraine that they have now declared to be russian territory um it doesn't take a huge leap does it from um from some of this this rhetoric to uh, an attack being made in those areas and and russia declaring that this is actually nato forces attacking russia um that that's that's sort of the you know the the nightmare scenario that people are sort of well, that would be a blunder on the scale of hitler declaring war in the united states after after pearl harbor to please japan the extremely unwise thing to do but you know you could argue that invading ukraine in the first place was a very unwise thing to do yeah, that's certainly true i'm not saying i'm not i'm not saying um he wouldn't do something that unwise i'm just stating it would be a very unwise thing to do mm. and um the russian military has been unable to fight Ukraine on its own. There's no way it could fight NATO. Mm. So, so attempting to claim that it was fighting NATO. I mean, in, in the Russian propaganda, they think they are fighting NATO anyway. So in a sense, it doesn't represent an escalation for them, other than for their own propaganda purposes to say, okay, here's a, um, we've, we've found some fake NATO troops somewhere they've mm. been attacking that would just say look it's their nato troops i mean no no one in nato would believe it um but there are plenty of escalatory options available to nato short of full-scale war that would cause serious damage to russia mm. and these have been communicated to russia so it's just partly why we're seeing different forms of rhetoric coming from you know they're trying to frame this threat in a new way because it's, it's not sinking in not changing NATO's behavior. So they need to try and um, find some other way to deliver it, and it's still not working. Mm. And the West is still being very cautious, not supplying. It could supply Ukraine with uh, ammunition to um, destroy the Russian airfields from which the cruise missiles are being launched. That would be an easy way to make Russia um, feel the pain. Mm. And so those things are not being done because they would be severely sort of, you know, um, escalatory in that sense. It's partly because they're uh, sometimes classed as escalatory and partly because um, they don't seem to be quite necessary. Mm. So it's always good to keep things in reserve. Well, we had a lot of talk. As a response, to, as a response to escalation from the other side. So you can yeah. sort of say, okay, well, by the way, we could do this. So you need to keep your war limited, otherwise we'll um, mm. give Ukraine more um, ammunition. So it's not just a sort of avoidance of escalation thing. Though there are people in the White House who are thinking that way, thinking too much that way, in my view. But they are there. Uh, it's also about saying, well, these are things we could do. Mm. And you know, like all these things, you have to hold them in reserve if they're to work as a threat. Because we heard a lot of discussion, didn't we, at the start of um, the invasion about no-fly zones, and I mean, certainly, um, you know, I'm not a military strategist, and I don't claim to be a foreign policy expert, but I thought that the idea on the um, sort of 60th anniversary of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis of uh, implementing a no-fly zone um, that NATO planes would have to patrol was very concerning um and particularly hearing um retired generals um being quite bellicose about it um saying of course you should close the air down and uh, you know and that means that you know if, if russia do um uh, enter that airspace then we will shoot them down you know that 
<laughs> you know, when we started seeing these discussions being in quite an offhand way, talking about sort of the well, that's um, that's that's been the, the no-fly zone has essentially been implemented by supplying the Ukrainians with air defense. Mm. The reason they're attacking with cruise missiles is because they don't dare send their um, bombers over because they'd all get shot out of the sky. Mm. They're um, and the Ukrainian air force is still flying, which no one would have thought could have mm. possibly happened. They've been unable to suppress Ukrainian air defense. They can't even, they certainly can't protect their own um, planes. So they're left um, to fire much more expensive missiles because that's all they can get through. So essentially what we, we're seeing is a, um, you know, a, a, a proxy war being fought with sort of NATO and, and the West able to support Ukraine to defend itself rather than well, it's not a proxy war in the sense in the sense that this is Ukraine fighting for its own independence from uh, Russian invasion it isn't some complicated cold war game uh, with different groups of rebels it's no so, a democratic sovereign state has been invaded by its neighbor in very world war II. but but uh, I mean but I mean but I mean in the sense that in the sense that NATO cannot openly commit to, to the defense of, of Ukraine in the way that well, NATO know, isn't openly committing. Well, that's what I mean. Is that is that essentially that's why I use the term sort of proxy, you know a proxy conflict that you know the West and NATO countries are doing everything they can to support Ukraine because they can't openly fight the war on their behalf. Is what but I mean. They're doing they're doing about fifty or sixty percent of what they can to support Ukraine without um, actually entering the conflict. There's a lot of other things they could be doing that they're not. Which are being held longer, they could supply longer range ammunition. They could conduct freedom of the seas operations to protect Ukrainian grain. They could impose secondary sanctions on Russia. You know, sanctions similar to the sanctions that operate on on, on Iran. So no one could even trade with people who trade with Russia. Mm. They could um, have a much more serious program to diversify energy energy sources. They could blockade Russian gas. With it would, it would be very painful to blockade Russian gas, but it could be done. So as you say, those are the things that are uh, are being held, sort of almost in in reserve. Some of them, because some of them are very costly to us, and some of them yeah, yeah. aren't thought to be necessary. Um, you know, they haven't even supplied Ukraine with um, fighter aircraft. The United States has thousands, I think, possibly even thousands of F-16s available that they could supply. It takes a while to train them, but they're available. It has a lot of tanks that it could send. No one has sent modern male, male, main battle tanks in, into Ukraine. Uh, in practice, again, that really means the Americans, because although the French and Germans do have some, they don't have huge numbers, mm. nor the capacity to replenish the um, production lines afterwards. But there's there are plenty of other things that could um, be done short of war. Mm. Are, far more Russian assets could be seized. They could be they could be the assets of Russians could be treated like the assets of um, essentially belligerent. Um, um, nationals in a war. There are lots of, there's a sort of, there's a whole set of things short of actually fighting that could be done to bring the legal regime for Russia in line with the legal regime for states whom we would actually be fighting. Mm. And none of those have, no, well, some of those things have been done, but a lot of them haven't. Yeah. There are many, many more things that could be brought in if necessary. Mm. But I think the calculations being that. Um, they're not that necessary because Ukraine actually is um, doing winning. extremely well. <laughs> I mean, winning, perhaps not, in the sense that it's very hard to say winning when you've got bits of your territory occupied by the enemy, but they're certainly um, fighting extremely well and they're certainly pushing the Russians back, investing them in a lot of the fighting. And what about the um, situation in Russia itself? Um, now that you have um, conscripts being sent to the front and you have, um, you know, videos being leaked of sort of some of the, uh, or posted, I mean, whether they've been leaked or not, um, of, you know, departure ceremonies in uh, various Russian towns with some, you know, very unhappy troops and very unhappy families. Um, and there's clearly a lot of disquiet over over that. What about sort of public opinion in, in, in Russia? Is this you know, being seen as the um, the misadventure and the kind of disaster that, that that it seems to be from from this side of the of Europe. I mean, we don't have you know reliable uh, opinion polls 
Mm. We have indications that there are differences in, in, in between the generations and the older generations are much more likely to support the war than the younger one. And that was true at the beginning, even before um, young men were being mobilized. You, are, you see the usual differences between core European Russia and Moscow and St. Petersburg and um, peripheral regions elsewhere. But they've also made sure to lock up all the opposition. Mm. You know, Navalny's in prison, most of his assistants are in prison, Vladimir Karamurza is in prison, um, plenty of other people have been neutralized. And the two others have left, of course, um, because people have been fleeing the country. So there's a lot of, you know, the state has a lot of control. Mm. And you're seeing a bit of grumbling in the elite, but it's going to be some time before that really filters filters down and uh, the economic damage hasn't been as serious as it could have been they've handled that relatively competently um but eventually the the, the pressure will start to tell now whether it <clears throat> whether it moves in a more you know ultra nationalist direction or in some more um direction willing to people willing to actually back down is another matter mm. well that's what i was going to move on to i don't know um you know with the trouble people saying the trouble with this war is it hasn't been done properly and competently well, well exactly true you, you kind of assume that you know uh, opposition to the war opposition to putin opposition to um conscription and um you know sending young men to, to die at the, at the front you, you one assumes that um oh this will you know be an opposition in the sense of wanting to to end the war and uh, you know and, and and pull back and stop russia's invasion of you uh, of ukraine that's not really necessarily true, is it? I mean, if you're looking at the, um, certainly from the elite level, um, if, if you if your view is this is a um, incompetently led um, army and it's not been done properly, then surely, actually, some of the um, some of the potential opposition um, we we might we might not know when, when we're better off. I mean, it could be that you know, were Putin to be displaced, he's going to be displaced by somebody who's um, even worse. And I think that's, I think the biggest danger there is Putin being replaced by somebody worse under the guise of some kind of, you know, incomplete peace settlement. Mm. Because the problems the Russian military have are more than just bad leadership. There are terrible logistics, in, you know, corruption um, riddled through the, through the system, disastrous equipment, non-existent training. Um, and those are kinds of problems that would take, you know, a good decade to fix. So it's not quite, you know, like mid World War One Germany, where Ludendorff could take over, and um, you know, get get things in better shape. It'd be more the, the kind of repair work needed is is much more serious reconstruction of the Russian war machine, if that's what that's what you're minded mm. to do. Um, I mean, it's. A casual observation, but you know the, the Russian riot police seem to be much better equipped for that task than the Russian soldiers. <laughs> now I don't know. Maybe maybe all that body armor is actually cheap Chinese body armor that doesn't work very well, but it looks good to an untrained eye um, when they're out, you know, um, arresting people and beating up protesters. And you mentioned and you mentioned earlier that there are, um, I think you said millions of people in the sort of um, employ of. The Russian state, in terms of the, their ability to uh, crack down on dissent, that the sort of in terms of internal security, you have a, a, a you know a, a huge operation there. Huge. I mean, it's, in a sense, it's the priority of the state is to maintain internal security and to prevent um, unpopularity getting out of hand and leading to um, disruption and challenge the regime. They can, you know, they can they can survive much more dissent than many other countries can. Mm. I, mean, I mean, historically, Russia, Russia has, Russian regimes have collapsed after, after military defeat, after army collapses. Um, but it's not, it's not clear that the army, I mean, and that caused society and government to collapse, but the army used to be much bigger then. You know, this is, for a country of 130 million people, this is still only, you know, maximum if you include all the cooks and um, fuel attendants and everything else half a million um operating now maybe two million if you include everyone in the whole military establishment mm. so you're not dealing with you know the czarist army that might have had 
10 or 15 percent of the male population in it at once you're dealing with or the red army at the height of world war ii was again 10 percent of the population serving in some way you're dealing with a smaller army so its collapse is less big um be difficult and there's questions over putin's competence and his replacement by other people and uh, who would do that um but i don't think a, a 1905 or 1917 style collapses on the cards even if they're routed militarily and again is that um you know a, a a symptom of the fact that you know there is such total control um and also we've had you know very little um uh, you know very little latitude given to any opposition figure as you say that you know anyone who is uh, a sort of um, prominent opposition figure in Russia um, is either in prison or dead um, and you know there hasn't been any space given are we seeing the sort of similar thing there that, that there just isn't um, the the basis on which any alternative um, yeah I mean there are, there, are people, there, there are people obviously you know keeping their head down and you know staying there and trying to um, have some sort of a civil existence but it's um they're not at the stage to be able to organize now obviously the whole system is totally corrupt so even the riot police are obviously corrupt um so there are questions if if their inability to sustain that resource flow means that they can't actually properly pay and pay off the um repressive arms of the state that will be a problem for it mm. but it's um I don't see it um, initially falling over. Now these are, you know, never make predictions, especially about the future, as they say. But I would think you'd have to see, you'd have to get, you know, one one plausible end game is that um, Russia withdraws, Putin is sent off to retirement somewhere, some new hardline nationalist comes in and tries to recreate a much more um, efficient. Russian war machine and they try something else maybe not against Ukraine maybe somewhere else but they try something else in a few in a few years that could be quite realistic mm. um you know the Russian state itself needs very deep reform before it can um adjust to you know pluralist even semi-democratic life so if you were to look at for example the um, we talked about Iran at the beginning to sort of bring it back full circle. I mean, we're not anticipating any sudden um, rush to uh, to democracy in either of those countries, really. But we are seeing sort of disquiet um, on the streets of both of them. Um, would you I would say, say Iran, Iran before Russia at the moment? I was going to I was going to say, yeah, you know, you're, we're looking at the sort of prospects of, of, of either of them sort of having any kind of great um, transition to a more democratic rule. You, you think Actually, Iran is more likely now than... Yeah, because the Iranian regime system, if you like, is about 40 years old. The Putin system is between 10 and 20 years old. He himself probably has another 10 years to go. Mm. Um, now, this is the, the war is obviously a disaster for Russia, but um, even if Putin goes, the security... Um, the security man state that he's constructed and that vision of Russia specifically as a Czechist operation um, can last longer. Well, there are plenty of other people that can replace him and run the same kind of um, the same kind of dictatorship for a bit longer. Mm. Um, and I, I you know, I, I'm not sure what the spark is that would trigger the kind of um, discontent that you need to have in, in the big Russian cities. I mean, it might be an economic spark if they stop being able to pay people valuable, mm. um, valuable wages and stop being able to transform Russia's natural resource, at least redistribute enough of Russia's natural resource wealth to the places that matter politically in Russia. Mm. Um, in other words, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other um, cities in European Russia, they can they complete they can get away with they seem to be able to get away with neglecting whole swathes of the country if all the figures about um, 
parts of the huge parts of the Russian population with no running water, no central heating, intermittent electricity. Please, if they can get away without supplying them with adequate services, while they salt away all the billions from oil and other natural resources, then it shows that they understand their society well enough for now to mm. keep a lid on things, partly because these places are so far away. If you're a Russian opposition, you know, if, you're, if you're an Iranian opposition movement, you can bust people in from nearby cities <laughs> relatively easily. You know, people can people can get on trains, on, or in Ukraine as well, people would get on trains and drive. They drove for the Maidan, and they were able to get huge numbers of people there as a result. Same for the Green, Green Revolution. Um, but you know, even Kazan's extremely far away from Moscow. Mm. It days to travel there if planes aren't available. Yeah. And he won't be available because of Western sanctions on Russian aircraft parts. <laughs> Indeed. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we're, we're looking at sort of the medium to, to long term before anything happens in, in any of these countries. But I mean, just to sort of round off, um, you do a lot of work in, in terms of um, promoting sort of democratic uh, institutions across uh, Europe and, and, and beyond. Um, is there anywhere else that we should be worried about? I mean, we've looked at, um, uh, you know, at, at countries where, you know, in terms of Russia and um, uh, and Iran, the, these are not um, democratic um, systems. Um, but at the same time, there is concern about the sort of robustness of, of, of um, political institutions um, in, in the West, whether that be in you know, the United States or, or, or elsewhere. Um, is there anything else that sort of should be on our radar for um, for sort of being concerned about um, potential threats to um, to sort of uh, you know freedom of expression and uh, freedom of opposition in in countries that we would describe uh, at the moment as as democratic? Well, I'd, I'd say there are two things that are worth focusing on. One is not in this category, but it's Belarus, where you have a a very unpopular dictator that's very repressive but also a very strong um, opposition movement. And it would be worth looking at Belarus and see how it can, uh, you know, how, how the government of in exile is working, how it's trying to um, support freedom in, in Belarus. And then the second question is really, if you take all these, you know, hybrid regimes, these facade democracies, um, you know, in Serbia and Hungary, um, it's what happens after they eventually run out of steam. How is society going to be ready not to make the same mistakes again? You know, what, if you, Ukraine had three or four, had three revolutions to get it to the state. Um, you know, Hungary and Serbia had one maybe, and as a result, they've gone back to some sort of, you know, more authoritarian system of semi-democracy. So um, how can you get um, society ready so that when, the moment of toppling them does come, um, they're able to um, form stronger democratic institutions mm. once it lasts. The other, and finally, one more place you should look at with the elections coming up next, next year is Turkey. Erdogan's unpopular. If it's a free and fair election, he'll lose. Um, I don't know how he's going to deal with that. And Turkey is a very strong tradition of actually having free and fair elections, mm. despite violence, coups, and opposition leaders being put in prison and all kinds of other stuff. The electoral infrastructure tends to be very strong. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. You know, if the polls are to believe, be believed, then um, Erdogan is out. So what happens there? That's really worth it as well. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one as well. Um, thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Garvin Walsh there, uh, taking us on a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the world's trouble spots and um, particularly looking at uh, Iran and the situation in uh, Ukraine and Russia. And I thought it was particularly interesting what he was saying at the beginning of that discussion about Iran and uh, towards the end there saying he thinks that it has more potential uh, for uh, democratic reform um, than Russia at the moment, uh, certainly quicker. And um, I think that does chime with some of the things that we were uh, hearing. I mentioned we've uh, had some events in the past that the Centre for Opposition Studies has organised with um, exiled uh, Iranian 
opposition and figures and dissidents. Um, and uh, it's very interesting to hear that some of the democratic uh, institutions or quasi-democratic institutions um, within the Constitution are there and that those provide perhaps a framework for for reform. So I thought that was a very interesting part of the discussion there. My thanks to Garvin for uh, for bearing with me uh, because I'm not a foreign policy expert and hopefully my uh, my ignorance wasn't too much on display in some of that discussion. Um, I think my my, uh, my fear of being annihilated in a sort of nuclear uh, Armageddon is um, certainly on display there, but uh, that's, uh, I think, something we can take as a bit of a given, really. Um, okay, so that's uh, all we have time for. Uh, we've uh, just gone over the hour, according to my um, timer here. So um, I'll wrap up there. And thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. We will be returning to UK politics um, very soon. Um, don't know who the Prime Minister will be or who uh, the various members of the Cabinet will be by the time we return with another episode. Um, but certainly we'll be returning to look at some of the uh, the issues facing the opposition in its many forms in the UK, uh, given the current situation. Um, but also opposition within parties as well, which is something which is uh, particularly pertinent uh, to recent uh, Prime Ministers and the fall of their governments. So, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, do please uh, make sure you're subscribed, listen back to our other episodes. Uh, if you can, wherever you get your podcasts from, make sure you uh, give us uh, a like and positive feedback to help other people uh, to find us. And uh, we'll be back with another episode uh, in the next couple of weeks. But until then, thanks very much for joining me. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. You've been listening to Opposition Cast from the Centre for Opposition Studies, presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us on Twitter at Opposition UK and online at oppositionstudies.net.